that he writes, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable or perfect will of God. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for this time of worship, that we can come and we can worship a victorious risen Savior, seated at the right hand of you. Father, I pray this morning as we look at these two verses, that we would be a people that are teachable, our hearts soft before you, our ears open to you, that we may know that your desire for us is to be a living sacrifice. That's our reasonable service to you because of your incredible love that has been bestowed upon us, your provision, your mercy. So, Lord, uh, we give this time to you in the teaching of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, you know, as we discussed when we opened up this letter that Paul, he's ending his third missionary journey. He's going through Greece. He's going through the areas of, of Achaia, Macedonia. He's collecting funds to take to Jerusalem to give to the believers down in Jerusalem because they were hurting. They, they were ones that were going through famine, and so he had a very special uh, place in his heart for them. And Paul, as he's there in Greece, taking that collection that he will take up to Jerusalem on his, as it will end his third missionary journey. While he's here in Corinth, he stops, he takes pen to parchment, and he begins to write a letter to them. And you might recall that in chapter 1, as he's writing to them, he expressed how he desired to come to them, but he was hindered at this time. It wasn't working out for Paul to go to Rome uh, at this particular moment. He, he would make his way to Jerusalem. He would stop. He would address the Ephesian elders. And as he's addressing them, he would say to them that the Holy Spirit has testified to me that there's chains and there's tribulations that await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy of the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to me. And I think about that, how incredible that Paul, as he's headed to Jerusalem, he knows that tribulations, that chains await him. And he says, but that doesn't move me. In other words, I'm going to continue to do what God has me to do, and I don't count my life dear to myself. In other words, my life is not its own. And as he does it, he does it after he is writing these words that we just read. And, and I think Paul knew what it meant to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And so Paul, as he gets to Jerusalem, as most of you know from those chapters in the book of Acts, from chapter 21 to chapter 28, that he would be arrested in Jerusalem as he was uh, he was. Uh, accused wrongly, unjustly, for uh, they thought he had taken Gentiles to the temple when he hadn't. And so the whole city rioted against Paul. It's amazing that Paul, wherever he went, it seemed like a riot would break out, a revival would break out, 
Sometimes both broke out. That was in the city of Ephesus. He was there three years. The city was given over to Christ, to the gospel, all of Asia, it says. But then at the end of his time there in Ephesus, he was driven out of the city because the silversmiths rioted against Paul. We know that Paul in Jerusalem, as the city comes against him, the Romans come and they take him into protective custody. And he goes through a series of trials from Jerusalem to Caesarea on the seacoast. He goes before Agrippa. He goes before Festus, the governors of that area. He would then stand before Agrippa in the amphitheater. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar. He had a right to do that. They said, to Caesar you shall go. And then Paul's put on a boat from the coast of Israel, and he would travel towards Rome. He gets into the boat, that is, a storm that lasted two weeks. The ship breaks apart. He washes up as well as the rest of the uh, crew and, and those on the ship on the shores of Malta. And then finally he makes it to Rome as a prisoner. But as he's writing this letter to them, he says, I'm hindered to coming from you. I really want to come. He would get there about three years after he pins these words, maybe not in the way that he thought. But what is interesting here that Paul, as he had not been to Rome, he did not establish the Church of Rome. I, I think that perhaps it would just free him up to just write about life-changing, impacting truth and theology concerning the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel that I'm going to write about. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And so Paul, when he would write to other churches, and it's interesting, Jesus, we said, you recall, if you were with us on Wednesday night, he writes a letter to seven churches in Proconsular Asia in chapters two and three. Paul, he writes in his epistles to seven churches. And when he would write to those churches, oftentimes it would be correct in nature. He was dealing with issues that, because he was so familiar with those churches. For example, to the Christians of Galatia, to those churches that he had established on his first missionary journey, he writes to them. It's the first epistle that we have of Paul the Apostle that is in the New Testament. It's called the early epistle. And he says, I marvel that you move away from the gospel to another, which is not the gospel. So he's addressing them and the Judaizers that had come in and told them that they had had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And then as his second missionary journey, he established the Church of Philippi. He writes them a letter, and he is dealing with two individuals particularly that were bringing division into the church. They were fighting, and it was affecting the church. And he says, hey, make sure that your conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He would write a letter to Corinth, the city that he's writing from now, to the, to the Romans there, the Christians, that the the church at Corinth, even though it had exploded there at the end of his second missionary journey, the church grew quickly. It was a carnal church. They had lots of problems. So the first letter that we have in our Bible, 1 Corinthians, is a very much a corrective letter dealing with their carnality and all kinds of other issues. And even 2 Corinthians is corrective in nature in that, that he's writing to them about his ministry because there were super apostles, that's what they called themselves, the most eminent apostles and prophets that came in 
They were drawing people away from Paul the Apostle and saying, don't listen to that Paul the Apostle. You know, his speech is, you know, contemptible. And, and, and look at him. He just wears those sweaty tent-making clothes. He has no real authority like we do. And, and they were ruling over the people with a heavy hand. And Paul says, listen, they're false apostles and prophets. Why, why are you, you giving ear to them? So Colossae, same thing. There was legalism and mysticism that was going on in the church. So he would deal with the issues that were in the churches. But here in Romans, as we have gone over the first 11 chapters, he's inspired by God to just give us a real clear understanding that we have need, of course, to be saved. We need this gospel of Christ. And that is chapters 1, 2, and 3. Every single one of us are guilty before God. And then, as you get to the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and 5, he gave us the doctrine of of justification, that is being declared righteous. And it comes freely by his grace as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't come by the deeds of the law because the purpose of the law is to show us that we are guilty and we can't keep it. So again, that's chapters 3, 4, and 5. Then chapters 6, 7, and 8, he switches from the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification. And that word sanctification, as you know very well, if you've been with us in our study on Sunday morning of Romans, means to be set apart to live for the Lord. And how we do that is that we are, first of all, realizing that we're dead to sin. We don't continue in sin that grace abounds. We're dead to it. We have this newness of life that we live. We identify with Christ. That's chapter 6. Chapter 7, not only are we dead to sin, but we're dead to the law. Because we are dead to the law to be joined to Jesus Christ. The law can't save us. The law declares us guilty. And in chapter 8, that we're to walk a life after the Spirit and, and according to the Spirit. And as we saw that, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that we are to be spiritually minded. And we have the spirit of adoption and that he is working in our lives for good and that his love will never be separated from us. And, and such wonderful truths that we saw in chapter 8. And then chapters 9, 10, and 11, he, he turns to his countrymen. We've been looking at this over the last six weeks. And he expresses his uh, continued grief and sorrow that he felt for them because they sought to establish their own righteousness through the law. But God's not through with them. He's not through with Israel. And one day all of Israel will be saved. So that's where we have been over the last six months in our journey through Romans. Just incredible theology in, in giving us the gospel to help us clearly understand it, be established in it. And now as we move into this final section of the book of Romans, let's read it again in verse 1 of chapter 12. He writes, I beseech you, therefore. Now, there is a pattern that we can see in some of the Pauline epistles. Uh, we see it here in the book of Romans. Paul, first of all, makes sure that we understand our position in Christ. Uh, the blessings and the benefits that we have as believers. His love for us. What he has done for us. And once we're established in our position in Christ, then he begins to emphasize how we live for Christ. We see that pattern, for example, in the book of Ephesians. Most of you that you know in the book of Ephesians, only six chapters long. It's not a long letter. 
But Paul in that book, he in chapters one, two and three, he tells us of the our position in Christ. He tells us that we have every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies as we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And, and he tells us how we are chosen and redeemed and forgiven. We have an inheritance. And, and he takes us to chapter two, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, because of his great love for us, has made us alive and we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works. And we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He wants to use you. He wants to use you to be a, a, a good vessel, an honorable vessel for him to bring glory to him. And he goes on and he says that you've been brought into, you know, the family of God, you Gentiles and Gentiles and Jews alike. We're all one, you know, part of the church and in all these incredible blessings that he continues to give to us in chapters one, two, and three. And then in chapters four, he says, I therefore now beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you are called. He begins to tell them how to live for the Lord, how to walk. You put off your former conduct. You walk in love. You walk in light. You walk in wisdom. Husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, you're to obey your parents and put on the whole armor of God and so forth. So that same pattern is here in Romans. Okay, now that you have a clear understanding of who you are in Christ, his love for you, his incredible mercy and grace bestowed upon you, the, the love that he has for you, the, the, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. Now that you're established in those things, he says, therefore, brethren, I beseech you. Now you live for Christ. And the next four chapters will focus on how we do that. Serve God with spiritual gifts. How it is that, that we are to behave like Christians. Be hospitable. Live peaceably with others if possible. That he's going to talk about our liberty in Christ and put on Christ and so forth. And then in chapter 16, he'll give this long final greeting. So an important pattern that we see in Paul in his epistles. And I do believe that it's, it's worth stopping and in, in considering this. And to understand you and I, that who we are in Christ, the blessings we have, my position in Christ, and that then is going to help me to live for him, right? You see, Paul would write something in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He would say it's the love of Christ that compels us or motivates us. And when we really understand the gospel and as it touches our hearts and it changes us and makes us new and we realize that Christ, his love for us is so great that he died for us even while we're yet sinners. His incredible grace, his incredible provision, his goodness, his promises are true. He's conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. What is our response? I hope it has been over the last six months. Oh, Lord, you're so good. Hasn't it? Lord, you're so wonderful. It just causes us to love him more, to, to want to be devoted to him, to break out in worship, even as Paul, as he broke out in worship, uh, often in this letter, in chapter 8, and, and last week we saw, as he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. Past finding out, you're so good, Lord, you're so incredible. And now because of that, your incredible mercies, and your incredible provision and love, and your goodness, this is now what you do to live for him. 
You see, as we respond our devotion and love, then we will want to live for him. It isn't, well, I guess I have to live for him or I got to live for him. You know, sometimes as Bible teachers, and there's nothing wrong with doing this, but sometimes as Bible teachers, we'll, we'll go to, for example, Ephesians chapter 5. And husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, you need to be submissive to your husband. And kids, you need to obey your you know, parents. And, and you employees, you need to respect your employers. And oftentimes, you know, people are going, really? I don't know about that. You know, I don't know if I can do that. I'm supposed to be submissive to that lughead, you know, things like that. And, and, and that can happen. And when we understand how much we are forgiven and how Christ has loved us, and as we see the picture of the church, we responding to him. And as we see his goodness, then it's like, Lord, because I love you, I want to do these things. Just like we love somebody, we want to please them. I love Sue. I love my spouse. It's out of love that I want to please her in my life. So understanding our position as believers, and as we do, we respond in worship, devotion to him. It's a heart issue. And then we won't struggle so much for living for him because we desire to do that and we'll want to become a living sacrifice. It's kind of like when we raise kids and any of us that have had kids, particularly when they go from an infant to a, a toddler, they have to learn to sit before they learn to walk, right? Doesn't go the other way. And how important it is for you and for me to just sit in the heavenlies and sit with Christ and just marvel at his incredible grace and love, his goodness for us, his mercy that has been bestowed upon us. And then as we do, as we respond out of worship and love for him, then we're going to have desire to walk for him and with him. And so we want to, as we consider this not only for ourselves, but listen, as we're ministering to others, maybe you're ministering to your kids. Maybe you're ministering to your grandkids or whoever it might be that's linked to you in your life. What we want to do is we want to get them to understand this, the love of Christ for you and who you are in Christ and what he has done for you, what he's provided for you, forgiveness and salvation, and he desires to work in your life, and, and he will always love you. You'll never be separated from his love. And all those things that have been emphasized in the first 11 chapters of Romans, and then, and then, live for him. And then they'll have a, a, a greater understanding and desire to walk with him. You see, without the first 11 chapters of Romans, then chapters 12 through 16, it's going to be more of a struggle, more frustrating. And that's why Paul writes here, here in verse 1, Therefore, brethren, in light of all that's been proclaimed to you, in light of all that you are in Christ, in this incredible gospel, provision of eternal life and forgiveness and his mercy and his love towards you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves your bodies, that is, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What Paul is now encouraging us to do is to now give ourselves completely to God, to a life that is pleasing to God. And why should we do that? Because of what? The mercies of God. 
what we have learned in this letter so far. He has saved us, forgiven us. As we've gone over, he loves us. His love always remains. He wants to freely give us all good things. He wants to conform us into the image of his son. And you, brethren, I beseech you because of the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to live for the Lord. Now, when we talk about offerings and sacrifices, you go to the Old Testament and in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus talks about all the different offerings and sacrifices. And some of those offerings, like, for example, in Leviticus chapter 1, speaks of the burnt offering. That was the free will offering. It was the offering of worship. You would bring the animal, and the animal was put on the altar, and the animal was completely consumed as, you know, you gave that sacrifice unto the Lord. And we are to be a living sacrifice. And what Paul is saying is we are to be completely submitted to him. When we present our bodies, it's more than just speaking about this, you know, flesh and blood. When we present our bodies, he's speaking about your whole being, your soul, your heart. And you are to present yourself as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Giving yourself completely to him is what the Lord desires. And the result is going to be holiness that has worked out in our lives. Now that word holiness probably isn't used in the church a whole lot in these days. But he has called us to holiness. And the way that holiness has worked out in our lives is a life walking after the spirit and a decision by any of us when we say, I'm going to give myself completely to you, Lord. A living sacrifice, a life brought to God, submitted to the Lord. The result is going to be holiness that has worked out in our lives. And it will be acceptable to the Lord or that is pleasing to the Lord. You see, back to Leviticus chapter 1, when that burnt offering was put on the altar and it was consumed, that it says that the smoke of the sacrifice was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. It was pleasing to the Lord. It, it smelled good to the Lord, in other words. And you see, when we become a living sacrifice, then it is well-pleasing to the Lord. It's like a sweet-smelling aroma. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about that. In verse 15, I'll read it to you. For we, he's talking to Christians, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then he talks about the aroma that leads to, to death, that is those who are unbelievers, and then the aroma that leads to life, those of us who are believers. And I remember speaking at a conference, and I did a message uh, on those uh, verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and I entitled it, What Do You Smell Like? So the question this morning is, what do you smell like? What aroma are you giving off? Are you given a sweet smell and aroma that's pleasing to the Lord and is a blessing to others? Or are you given off an aroma you smell like the world in the stench of the world? And here Paul is saying, being a living sacrifice, pleasing unto the Lord, a sweet smell and aroma unto the Lord. This is your reasonable service, he says, or logical service or logical worship because the sacrifices of the Old Testament, it was an act of worship. Being a living sacrifice is a decision that you make for holiness. It is a life of worship according to God's word. In light of the mercies that God has shown to you and to me, the only logical thing for us to do is to come and to worship and to say that I am yours totally, Lord. 
But before we leave verse 1 here, I just want to look at where Paul starts out by saying, I beseech you. You say, yeah, I know that. But I want us to consider this, that that is a tender term that he's using here. It's like he's saying, in other words, I beg you, I plead with you, please, brethren, I beseech you, be a living sacrifice. You see, he wasn't all commanding and demanding, and he didn't go around the churches being all dictatorial and heavy-handed and all of this. I command you, I, Paul the Apostle with apostolic authority, command you to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. It, rather, he, he says, I plead with you, I beseech you, I'm begging you. Because he was a spiritual father talking to his spiritual children. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. You know, sometimes people will say to me, Pastor Jeff, what you need to do is you need to lay down the law to the people. You need to really emphasize the do's and, and all of this. And, 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 and we will do that as we go through the scriptures. We will talk about the commands of the Lord. We're going to talk about biblical morality. We're not going to hold back from those things. But you need to really press it on the people. You need to, to pastor with a heavy hand or really have the people under your thumb. Seems like that's kind of an attitude that people have. And sometimes people will come to me over my years of ministry. And you know what they're doing? You need to call them up and tell them they need to be doing this and not doing that. And you need to, to get a hold of these people and, and all of this. And I'll say, well, why don't you get a hold of them? And then... Oftentimes during that, I think, what control do you think that I have over people? What control do you think I have over people? I will give you the word of God. And I will give it to you in how it is presented to us. I won't hold back. And we will address sin and carnality and all that. We do that here. And God does want you to live a holy life. But what control do you think that I have over people? Parents, as our kids grow up and they become adults, what control do you have over them? What control do you have over your spouse? My point is this, that Paul didn't go around all demanding and I got control over you. When he was writing to the Corinthian church, again, known as a carnal church, he said that as I come to you, I didn't come peddling the word of God like these other guys. I came in humility I came in weakness. I came submitted to the Lord to give to you. We didn't take from you. We gave you freely the gospel and the word of God. We came to serve you. And then Paul says to them that the more that we love you guys, the less we are loved by you. And these other guys, they rule over you with a heavy hand and, and, and all of this. And even Paul writes about that they punch you in the face. These guys ruling over the Corinthians coming in and saying, you need to listen to us. And we're being demanding and we're going to rule with a heavy hand. They were punching the people in the face and they were putting up with it. Paul says, I'm not here to rule over you, but to be helpers of your joy. John, when he wrote his last epistle, 3 John, that little short epistle, he talks about a man, Diotrephus. And Diotrephus, I'm warning you, he likes to have preeminence over people. Beware of him. He, he's kicking people out of the church. He's having a heavy hand over people ruling over them. He even comes against us. 
When Jesus was writing the letters to the seven churches in a couple places, the Ephesus and another church, he says, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Nico means to rule, laitan, laity. I hate that doctrine of ruling with a heavy hand over the laity, over the people. You see, I want to be a helper of your joy. And I want to be like Paul the Apostle in his love and concern for the church that I beg you, please, because of the mercies of God, the goodness of God. He wanted everyone to experience the blessings of a life that was surrendered to God. But he, he beseeched them, pleaded with them. He didn't say, I, Paul the Apostle, come with apostolic authority, commanding and demanding and dictatorial and all of this. He knew that it would be an individual decision and to do that and, and for everyone. And he couldn't force anyone into that. And not the Church of Rome or any other Christian. And I can't force you to do that. That is a choice for you to make. But I do want to be a helper of your joy by telling you of the mercies of God, the benefits of living for God, and then hopefully you'll see it and you'll respond to it out of worship and love. So I want to say this. If there is compromise, if there is sin in your life, and there is carnality, and you know it, I beg you, please stop. Please stop and repent. Because over time, you may have pleasure in sin for a moment or think this is really satisfying or nobody knows about this or it's not a big deal. It will eventually put you in bondage and it will bring discouragement and defeat and depression. And it will wipe you out. Because that's what the Bible says will happen. And you'll be in bondage. And I beg you, please, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Enter into that life abundantly that Jesus has talked about. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word conformed, as you know, means to be shaped by, molded by. There's so many forces out there in the world that can conform you to the world. And when Paul speaks of the world here, he's talking about the world's system, the world's way, the world's philosophy, the world's way of thinking and doing, which is contrary to God. Don't be shaped by this world, influenced by the world, where you're thinking and living in an ungodly way. But rather, we are to be transformed, which means there is a moving, there's a shifting. That's where we get our word transportation, right? Moving, transportation, it also takes on the word transform. It has the same meaning as metamorphosis. A change, a shifting from that which is immature to maturity. That which is incomplete to completeness. That which is a caterpillar into a butterfly. And John, as he would write in 1 John chapter 2, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we're not of the world. We're not to love the things of the world. We are in the world. But we're not to prioritize the world. Remember Romans chapter 8? Don't live after the flesh, but in the spirit. Don't be carnally minded, which is death, but be spiritually minded, which is life and peace. So I think every single one of us that are here listening to this message, we don't want death. We don't want to smell the stench of death. We want life and peace that the Lord has for us. And it comes as we make a decision that I'm going to be a living sacrifice unto you, Lord.
And I'm not going to be conformed to this world, which easily can get a foothold into our lives and begin to dominate our lives. We or the church. Again, we're in the world. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy doing things. We can't enjoy one another. We can't enjoy, you know, different seasons of our lives. I think the Lord desires for us to have joy in every season of our lives. But the world isn't going to have a pull on me, dominate me. I'm not going to prioritize the world. I'm not going to be enamored with the world. I'm not going to be shaped and conformed to the world. But I want to be conformed, as Paul wrote in chapter 8 of Romans, into the image of Jesus Christ's Son. And of course, the way that we're transformed, of moving from the world to God, is prioritize God in the things of the kingdom. First of all, you have to be born again by the Spirit of God. That's obvious. That has to happen first. Maybe you're here. Maybe you haven't given your life to Christ. We're going to give you the opportunity to do that. Maybe you're here and you grew up in a Christian home. You've gone to church all your life, whatever the case may be. I, you know, I know about Jesus, but have you really given your heart over to Christ? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And then to say, Lord, I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to set my minds on the things of God. I want to, to take in the things of God. I want to renew my mind. So the question for all of us to ask ourselves is this. What is it that you're taking into your mind? What is it that you want to take into your mind? Is it always worldly things? Or a desire to renew your mind by taking in the things of God and the Word of God? You know, sometimes people will say to me again, well, it doesn't really matter what you, what you watch and what you listen to and all of this, you know. That's just legalistic stuff. Listen. It's wisdom. You don't think that if you're listening to and looking at and putting into your head all day long carnal things and worldly things and watching, you know, this carnal thing and, and listening to that and on social media and you're all involved in the gossip and the latest news and listening to news talk 24 hours and, you know, blasting this politician and this thing and all of this, you don't think that it doesn't affect you when you go to bed? What is it that you're going to be thinking about? You know how that works. But this week, l l let me just encourage you, instead of spending all that time on that and being bombarded by the things of the world and all that that affects us, why don't you say, listen, I'm going to put that aside. I'm not saying we shouldn't be informed. I'm not saying that you need to close down all your social media accounts. But I'm not going to be on it and constantly be taken in and, and looking at the gossip and, you know, all the opinions and all the world and philosophy and this and that that bombards us and the gossip and the slander and things that get you upset. And, and, and we go to bed and we're so uptight. Instead of all that all day long, Make sure you start your day with the Lord and then say, you know, I'm going to put those things aside for a little bit and I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to listen to praise music. To be able to say, you know, I'm going to redeem the time for the days are evil, as Paul said in Ephesians. So when I'm in the car, I'm going to listen to Grace FM. I'm going to take in the things of God to renew my mind, to wash myself with the water of the word because all the dirt and dust and filth of the world is all over me. And we need to constantly be doing that because the world will come in and invade you constantly 
all day long and to our kids as well. It does matter what you take in and what you're listening to. The Bible talks about meditating on the word of God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119 that I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways and I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Joshua was told in chapter 1 of the book of Joshua that Joshua, if you want to be prosperous and successful in all your ways, then meditate on the word of God day and night. There are a thousand books in the Christian bookstore on the secret of, of being successful, being prosperous as a Christian. There's no secret. Read Joshua chapter 1. And as Joshua was told that you will be prosperous, you will be successful in this best sense of the word as you meditate on the word of God day and night. As you're thinking about the word of God, taking in the word of God. Wednesday I was exhorting the people. It's very important as we see all these things around us because I don't know if you've noticed, I'm sure you have, but this world is really messed up. And it's getting darker and it's getting more confusing, and it's getting more frustrating. And we need to look at things through the lens of Scripture and not be surprised that these things are happening because Jesus told us they would. We know that what is the atmosphere is going to be like in the last days. These things are going to come to pass. So we as Christians need to look at things through the lens of what God's Word declares to us and have a biblical world view. And as we do, and we're taking in the word of God and know that we belong to another kingdom, that we're citizens of heaven that's going to last forever, and that to have an eternal perspective on things, then it will cause us to want to live for him. And we, as we meditate on the word of God day and night, it will bring peace and comfort to you. And it will bring strength. And you'll be prosperous and successful. Philippians chapter 4, brethren, whatever things are true and whatever things are noble, whatever things are just and pure and lovely and good report of virtue, praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So again, we get bombarded all day long because we're in the world with worldly things. And that's why it's essential that we be taking in the word of God, having devotions, having devotions with your family. Coming here and, and receiving the things of God, not the world. And that's why the word is emphasized here. So there's a renewing of the mind, not the entertaining of your mind. There is a renewing of the mind, a transformation taking place, a, a transformation, a shift of thinking and living from the world to living and thinking of the things of God. To go out here and encourage and bless. That takes place in our hearts and in our minds and inside of us, it's being worked out in our lives. So Paul writes in that last phrase of the verse, renewing your mind will lead to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And it starts by presenting yourself as a living sacrifice, submitting to God completely, and then taking in the things of the Lord, the word of God. And what God has for you is good and it pleases God. And is acceptable. We know his will for our lives. And that is, Lord, you're working for good. Listen, and particularly, it's for all of us. You want to live life the way it was meant to be lived? In the best sense, then live for Jesus. Don't live for the world. Live for Jesus. 
and you will see that he will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. It doesn't mean it's all going to be rainbows and lollipops every day, right? You will go through trials, you'll go through challenges, but you have the Lord. And you'll see him working in amazing ways. And you'll be so thankful. And you'll have those things worked out in your life of peace and joy and comfort and strength and wisdom that we all want, right? Amen? Be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. So, Lord, these verses we can talk so much about. But we come to you. Father, we thank you. Paul the Apostle, like he would take a Christian by the arm and say, I beg you, I plea, please be a living sacrifice. Because this world we know is not where it's at. Living after the world, culture, and what it says will leave us in the dark, wiped out, depressed, defeated, discouraged, in bondage. Lord, you want us to be free. You want us to experience that abundant life. You want us to have true strength and wisdom. So, Lord, we thank you that as you have bestowed upon us your incredible mercy, salvation, and forgiveness, your love, your promises, that our reasonable response is, I want to be a living sacrifice. I do want to pray for anyone who's here. <clears throat> Maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus. You see, in a minute, we're going to go to the communion table. It's for the believer. It's remembering what Jesus has done for us, allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin, his incredible mercy, his provision. So it's for the believer. But if you're not a believer, we invite you right now to give your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. He is your salvation. There is none other. He alone died for you. He alone rose from the grave. And he alone sits at the right hand of the Father. He loves you. And the invitation is to come and call upon the name of the Lord, to be forgiven. You can do that right where you are. You can pray that, Jesus, I come to you a sinner, and I confess that I have sinned, and I believe you died for me on the cross. And you did, as we sang today, you did say it is finished. So forgive me. I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you are alive. You rose from the grave. Speak into my heart. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And I do want to walk with you. I want to know you and learn of you. And Lord, I thank you for saving me in this new beginning that I have in Jesus' name. And listen, if you sincerely prayed that prayer, you're welcome to come to the communion table. We want you to come and tell the prayer team the decision you made. But for all of us, as we hold the elements in our hands, it would remind us of the mercies of God that have been given to us, your provision, that we would just continue to worship as these, these elements are handed out, and then we'll partake of them together.